0: Hey, friends. Uh, happy Friday. Some some good and some bad news here. The bad is that there's no roundup today. Uh, Santiago and I are both out of the country, and between crappy Wi-Fi and 15-hour time differences, we thought we would make it, uh, be able to make it work, but alas, here we are. So definitely a bummer because there was a lot going on last week. I wanted to drop a few things that I'm paying attention to from the past week. So first was U.S. considering banning staking. If you haven't seen Brian Armstrong's tweet on this, I'd recommend it. Uh, the next is the Binance U.S. banking ban, uh, which as Nick Carter kind of appropriately labeled Operation Chokepoint 2.0, which I thought was a good one. Uh, DCG Settlement, uh, Uniswap's governance vote, and specifically Andreessen Horowitz's involvement in it. If you're interested in the governance space, I'd definitely recommend reading about that. Uh, Stargate reissuing tokens following Alameda's wallet hack. Um uh, let's see, Maker had some interesting stuff. So Maker launched something, uh, a native liquidity market called Spark Protocol, kind of similar to Aave. Uh, also Lido um, had some interesting stuff that we covered at BlockWorks. So definitely a bummer we couldn't make this roundup work because there was a lot going on this past week. But I think we have two good solutions for you guys. So on the good stuff. Uh, in a couple of minutes, you're going to hear an episode from another BlockWorks podcast called Bellcurve. So if you haven't listened to Bellcurve, Bellcurve is a show that explores these big themes in crypto. Season three, which is our current season, is all about the app chain thesis. And if you really want to deeply understand cosmos and the app chain thesis, there's no better place than season three of Bellcurve. So in this episode that you'll hear in a few minutes uh, on the Empire Feed, it's episode one of the season with Sonny Agarwal of Osmosis, Dimitri Berenzin from 1KX, and it's hosted by Mike Apolito from Blockworks. And Miles O'Neill from Reverie. So, really, really, really good episode and, and, and just generally a good season if you're interested in the app chain thesis. One more piece of good news. If you're thinking, all right, I, I get this cool app chain thesis is, is interesting, but like it's end of the week. I really just wanted to round up. We also got you. So Bell Curve has a roundup that goes live around 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern on Fridays. It's with Michael and Vance from Framework Ventures. Really unique takes on the industry. Um, and and on some big news stories. So I would definitely recommend tuning into the Bell Curve Roundup when it goes live around 2 or 3 p.m. on Friday. So that's it. That's it for the announcements. I will see you all on Monday for a really fun conversation about big brands getting into crypto, getting into Web3 that Santi and I hosted. So that's it. hope you guys enjoy the episodes and have a great weekend all.
1: i actually don't think people are users of ethereum i think they're users of applications but also more importantly they're users of metamask people i think i think the lock-in isn't actually ethereum the lock-in is metamask and today what makes an ethereum l2 like polygon easier to use than cosmos uh, like osmosis is that you don't have to download a new wallet right because you already are already have metamask installed
2: all right buddy episode one
3: Miles, excited to do this with you, Ben? Yeah, me too. I'm uh, you know, we bring on Sonny and Dimitri. I think these are two of the leading thinkers of the space and just a great way to kick off the season.
2: So maybe uh why did we you know, this is obviously intro to season one. We're gonna be talking sort of big picture, although honestly the interview did get a little bit technical at points as well. That's yeah. part of the good thing about Dimitri and Sonny, but why do we pick these two to sort of kick off kick off the season?
3: Yeah, I think with Sonny, he is probably, you know, the builder of the most mature, uh, application specific chain in the space right now in, in terms of osmosis. Um, and I think he's, he's really been one of the leaders in, in trying to, um, push this, I would say reorientation from thinking about decentralized applications, thinking about blockchains really from, you know, an application first standpoint rather than a chain first standpoint. Um, and I think we'll, we'll hear him really. To kind of dig into that over the course of the episode. Um, and then on Dimitri's side, you know, he's, he's coming from it from the perspective of an investor. Um, right. And he's thinking about, okay, if we do believe that applications are going to want their own block space, right? What is, what is the spectrum of the? of the different versions of this look like? What does the end state market structure look like? Um, and I think he's done a great job exploring that in the past.
2: I totally, it's actually always good to get sort of a builder and investor because they, they're both very smart, but they kind of come at it from different angles. And I think when you get the two of them, uh, you get some, some pretty special, yeah, some pretty special content. Well, this was, this was a fun one. Um I think without any further ado, let's just, let's dive right in. Welcome to the first episode of season three of Bell Curve. Very excited to be joined, uh, by my new co-host for the season, Miles O'Neill. Uh, and we've also got Sonny Agarwal of Osmosis and Dimitri Berenzen of 1KX to explore, uh, the AppChain thesis. So guys, welcome all to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Maybe we could start from just, uh, since this is the first episode of the season, just sort of a 10,000 foot view. And Sonny, maybe I can pick on you a little bit here, but if we could even just start with something as basic as, you know what are app chains when we talk about app chains, and if you had to put the broad contours around kind of the app chain thesis, you know why do people sort of get excited about that about that term
1: yeah sure um so the what wait, app chain it's uh short for an application specific blockchain um I think what we get maybe to talk about the app chain thesis before we even go into app chains I think. I I have to make a pitch for why applications are valuable and that then will later lead into why app chains, Uh, you know, why applications are valuable, you know. So in crypto, there seems to have been this like prevailing thesis that has been around for the last about five years, ever since the like infamous Union Square Ventures like blog post about it called the fat protocol thesis and it's been around this idea that like hey you can build this like generalized l1 and you just get other people to build stuff on top of it and but all the most of the value accrues to the like l1 token and it's like and that's been sort of this like primary thesis that's been driving this like l1 driven investments over the last, especially over the last bulls, like this last bull cycle where like, you know, most of the investment flowed into like your avalanches and, you know, th- you know Solana's and stuff where it's like, oh, look at these generalized platforms, a lot of builders on top of it. Um, And this is sort of like a bet on infrastructure, right? It's like, okay, if you can build the rails that everything runs on, that's what's where the value accrues. And this bet has been made before in the 90s, right? Where like, if you know, we're in web three now. If you look at like the original web, uh people were, as you know, the dot-com bubble was happening and, you know, the internet was really heating up, people were like, oh, how do you bet on the internet? Uh, this growth of this new thing. And a lot of people, those are were like, oh, well, you bet on the pipes, right? Like you bet on CompuServe and AOL, they're building the pipes that the internet is running on. And, you know, as the internet grows, that's where the value is gonna accrue. Now, if you look back in retrospect, you know, we have uh, you know 30 years of background, now. looking back now, it's like, no, those actually weren't the right bets to make, right, like those, CopyServe and AOL, kind of like died off effectively. Um, really, the two best bets you could have made in the 90s on the web were Google and Amazon. And those two were applications, right? And like, uh, you know, and the thing is, applications really, in my opinion, are where value accrues, and like, you know, because they because of a number of reasons, right? They they're like much more stickier, the the, the and they're not they're not commoditizable. They have like a direct relationship with with users in a way that the pipes don't. And so, you know, today I actually would argue that people aren't necessarily ethereum users they're uniswap users or they're ave users and as these applications go multi-chain or as i suspect will go app chain uh you know the the user's relationship with the actual blockchains will kind of gets like it's it intermediated through the applications and the and that's why the applications are really where this value accrues um, and how this now then relates to the whole app chain thesis, which is like, you know, look at today. Now, actually, the two biggest Internet services providers are actually Google and Amazon as well. Right. Like, you know, you have AWS and Google Cloud, because it turns out the people who build the applications have the best knowledge of what's needed from the infrastructure to build the best applications. And that actually enabled them to build the best infrastructure layers as well. And that's kind of almost a claim of app chains as well, that by like, you know, the app developers actually know better of what how to build proper infrastructure than these like pure infra builders. And that's why the app chains are going to sort of uh win out and like, you know, the, we can design the infrastructure for the needs of applications uh in a way that generalized blockchains can't. So I talked for a little bit, I'll, I'll let maybe someone else uh, jump in with some but that was a little bit of background on how I see value accrual in blockchains.
4: I have a like a different world view of like how to cut it. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said, I guess to answer the question like I define an app chain as a blockchain that dedicates its block space to a specific application, which is like a very simple way to uh, to describe it. And that definition also is quite broad in the sense that you could consider Bitcoin to be an uh, app chain or you could consider Weave to be an app chain as well. I think the concept itself uh, is not particularly new in that like it's been implemented in, in many ways. Um, I, I, I think there have been projects like Cosmos, Polkadot that have generalized that idea, um, uh, but it's actually been around for uh, for a while. Um, I view it also as like a scalability thing, um, uh, and, uh, an evolution around, um, realizing that, um, there's a general, like, like with blockchains, there's a product market fit for, um, block space. You know, I, I think of, uh, block space as effectively like a market for, um, uh, trust. Um, and over the years, we, we've, we've seen more and more, uh, demand for these, um, uh, uh, trust minimized markets, um, in a way that no specific instance, uh, could scale. Um, and so we've seen that around, um, like the, I, I guess around like 2020, um, where you look at, uh, super high gas fees, um, uh, a lot of this we've seen on like Polygon and, and, um, uh, that kind of, prompted uh, uh the development for other ways to scale um and a very basic idea was that hey instead of um stuffing everything inside of like one state machine what if we just like have um uh like very specific um like little like pockets where applications could do their own thing um and i think that's like a uh in- interesting paradigm um the last thing i'll mention is that um I think we're talking about app chains in uh, in the context of like a full stack solution. So just like to frame it, um, I think a lot of people uh, when they think about app-, app chains, they they think about a Cosmos uh, chain where it's like from like all the way down to the consensus level. Um, I think that also exists along a spectrum. Um, I actually consider like application specific rollups to be an app chain as well. You know, I kind of look at a rollup as like a trust minimized blockchain with a two way trust minimized bridge. So there's other terms you could start to introduce. And I think we have already too many in crypto, but like a app or like an app space uh, concept. Um, so I also want to like talk about, um, the notion of, uh app chains with this idea in mind where like I like I'm bucketing roll-ups uh in uh in that spectrum as well.
3: Yeah, and I think I think that spectrum is is really something we want to dig into today and and really for the, the rest of the season as well. Um I guess for simplicity and I'll I'll throw this to Sunny first in the context of a of a full stack app chain. Um, what would you say are the most compelling reasons to build an application as a full stack app chain? What are, what are the things that you can do when you vertically integrate? Um, and maybe some, some examples, whether it's osmosis or, or other app chains that you've seen, um, you know, of some of these benefits in action.
1: Yeah. But I honestly, I, I completely agree. I, I actually, you know, rollups are option, you know, application rollups are just blockchains that use like different security, like, you know, what, where, how a security mechanism works is I think, uh, almost a side concern and when on whether something is an app chain or not. And I think like the way security is going to look even on cosmos is going to be like very different than it does today. Right. Like, you know, as we move towards mesh security and like, you know, f- validity proof based like IBC, like, you know, th- all of this is going to look very different anyways. Um, so yeah. So why do, would someone choose to build an app chain in general? Uh, One of the biggest reasons, okay, you know, I think there's a different reason, right? One is, you know, uh, you just want to have more ownership over your block space, right? And that, you know, this is really valuable when you're running on a generalized blockchain, you know, you are basically like competing for that block space. And, you know, suddenly a really popular application could come up in which their users are less price sensitive towards gas. And then, you know, drive up the price of your, your block space as well. And, like, this just leads to a really bad UX. Remember, like, I remember the meme back in, like, 2017 was, like, uh, you know, how are we supposed to pay? Like, you know, you know, you, you can't do your groceries with on Ethereum because every time there's an ICO, there's going to be, like, you know, your gas price doing a transaction cost $50. Okay, back then it was ICOs. Maybe now it's, like, NFT drops. But, you know, there's always these, like, one-off events that cause random, like, Uh, unpredictable spikes in demand for block space, when you have your own app chain where there's like nothing else happening in that app chain, you know, you don't have these unpredictable spikes that are like out of your control of your application. And the other thing you can also do when it comes to block space gas kind of related things is like, do application related subsidies of of computation, right? Like, there are things that you might want to do in a blockchain, but that like you, it because it's an application block specific blockchain, there are like public goods for that blockchain that are subsidized, so, like, in example, this is what precompiles in Ethereum effectively are where there where like for example, like doing a sha hash in Ethereum or verifying a signature in ethereum is actually that that computation is actually subsidized relative to what it actually should be, but it's because it's like, okay, you know, we need to provide this because it's necessary for things to, most things to work on Ethereum. As an app chain, you can make more pre-compiles for different things. Let's say you are an AMM-based blockchain, app chain, which, uh, you know, Osmosis is, and it's like, oh, why don't we build a pre-compile, you know, we have to do this like heavy, amm computation math to like do stuff why are we not just like subsidizing this because this is like you know a core part of the protocol we can actually like you know uh make it so we don't actually have to run this in a vm we can run this as precompiled code there's all this sort of like benefits you can do there that give you all these uh benefits on the block space level so that's like the block space argument for app chains there's also like in my opinion just like the the innovation uh side of app chains where when you're building a uh application on a generalized blockchain you're you're often very constrained by the limitations of the platform that you're building on and you have very little ability to change them like you know here's a new limitation of the uh EVM that i just encountered la- yesterday that frustrated me which is i can't as an as a eoa account as an uh, i can't send eth and with in the same transaction. These have to be two different transactions. And that was like, this is mind-boggling, right? And it's like, well, on an app chain, I can go change how my blockchain works to go allow myself, I, I want to be able to do that. I can go change the code to be able to do that. I want to go, and and a place where like being able to go change stuff at the protocol layer is like very interesting, especially if you're doing like new, cryptography right like you know i think it's interesting to note that like not everyone but almost every interesting project that's doing something interesting with privacy is building on cosmos and building an app chain right whether it's you know a noma penumbra secret network like you know because you really do need this like sort of low level control in order to like really on the cryptography side of things to innovate like just think about how many debates today are time is spent debating on like which eip is going to get implemented next in ethereum and it's like okay yeah you know this one's going to be slated for two years from now as an chain, you don't have to participate in these debates because you can just you know be like i'm going to go change my blockchain to do the things i need and that's sort of one of the things one of the big bets of osmosis is you know your Uniswaps of the world are going to be constrained by the platforms they're built on. Osmosis, we don't control just the application. We control the application, we control the blockchain. And it just so happens that our team also builds the Kepler wallet, which is like the primary wallet for the Cosmos ecosystem. So we have this like extremely full stack control that enables us to innovate. It's the Apple thesis, right? Apple's whole take was like, okay, we're going to build the phones. We're going to build the software, the OS. We're going to build the most popular apps. And now they're even going to go build their own chip. Now they are building their own chips and hardware. But their bet is that they can build this like highly vertically integrated stack that provides the best UX and performance to users.
3: I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think we can peel back whether this applies at the roll app layer or not, but what are the some of the things you can have your validators actually do for you when you when you control the set, um, you know, which is kind of a, lot of a lot is spoken about, about the, you know, the downsides of needing to bootstrap your own validator set. But I don't think a lot is really talked about in terms of, you know, what you can ask your validators to do if they are, you know, dedicated to just your application.
1: Yeah. So a cool thing that you can do is like, yeah, you have this set of nodes uh, with stake behind them that are basically voting on every block. And this actually gives you an opportunity to ask them to add more data along with their votes. And so some of the things that we want to do is like, you know, one of the things that we're really focused on is this thing called threshold decryption. It's an MEB resistance strategy. But part of what makes... The threshold, you know, there there have been proposals of like, oh, we can add threshold decryption uh, using like meta layers on top of Ethereum. But the problem is, like, you actually run into all these issues with how you deal with reorgs and stuff. You know, you actually want your validator set of the consensus layer of your blockchain to also be your like threshold decryption set. So that way, as blocks progress, it Decryptability of transactions is atomic with finality of blockchains. You can't decrypt a transaction unless it's finalized and added to the blockchain, and you can't finalize a block, a block without having it be decryptable. And so having the same set be doing both of these things is really valuable. Um, another example of what you can ask them to do is Oracle updates, right? Like, you know, almost every, not every single one, but I would say a vast majority of DeFi applications today do rely on some sort of Oracle. Uh, and for so many of them, we've just come to rely on like Chainlink as our like, okay, this is our Oracle source. But really that, that's kind of actually pretty centralized. And and more importantly, it's not atomic with block production, right? You, you have no guarantee that Chainlink Oracle updates will actually enter the chain in a timely manner. Meanwhile, instead, if you had it so your validators were the ones providing the Oracle updates, you actually have a strong guarantee now that Oracle updates are are uh, arriving in a timely order, and you can uh, depend on that. So you know it's probably not the most popular topic, but this is actually something Terra did pretty well, right? Like their, you know, during the entire crash uh, process, their Oracle worked extremely well, almost too well, uh, and like and like and th- that that was possible because of the fact that it was the validators who were. Atomically providing uh, the Oracle updates during the block production process.
3: Yep yeah, that 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 one you know we don't like to talk about it too much anymore but but that really was kind of the first you know example of what we've seen there I think DYDX and Say are another example where we'll see you know off chain order matching so you can run the the order book actually on the validators themselves. Um, yeah, and I think we've also seen, especially with osmosis, you know, a lot of, a lot of benefits to the UX between, you know, custom fee models, um, custom transaction ordering. Um, and that kind of, yeah. that kind of also leaves to the, the value accrual side, you know, so not just MEV mitigation, but also, you know, potential value accrual. Um, so I don't know if there's anything you want to add there, but
1: yeah, I can talk about like, so. Yeah, those are good two points, custom fees, I think that's a really important one. One of the biggest, I don't know, pain points I've always felt with almost every blockchain I've interacted with today is like the way that it demands fees be paid in in a specific token. I remember like the first time I tried to show a friend how to use Ethereum many years ago, I like made him open a wallet, I sent him some DAI and I'm like, cool, now try sending it back. And we realized, oh, wait, he can't because he doesn't have any ETH. This is fucking stupid. Um, and so, uh, you know, one thing that we were, and, you know, frustrated with this, one thing that we were able to do in Osmosis is we're like, hey, we want people to be able to pay fees in any token they want. Uh, we have keywop prices from our decks because it's an app chain. So we can use those as a way of, like, allowing people to pay fees in any token, and that's like you know you can and you can do other cool things with fees. You could be like you know oh imagine you have like a specific NFT, you get some sort of fee discount, right? Like you can you can get really creative with the way that fees work in your blockchain, or maybe you could be like oh if this is a trade transaction, we can allow the swap fee that someone is paying to also like count towards how much the, their gas fees as well. You can you can be very creative on this kind of stuff. Um, the other thing is how like transaction ordering works. So like um, semi related to like Oracle, like you know you, maybe you want to be like oh I want all Oracle updates to go to the front of the block. Your execution layer doesn't have to follow the rules of like what order transactions are included in a block, right? You can be like you can you're you can be smarter to actually scan through the transaction in the block categorize them and be like, Hey, I want to execute them in a different order. So as an example, as a dex, right? You know, we have liquidity ads, we have trades, we have people removing liquidity from the pool. Maybe what we want to do is like say, Hey, okay, first, what we're going to do is look through all the transactional block, execute all the liquidity ads first. Then we're going to go ahead and execute all the swaps. Maybe we batch them. And then we're going to execute all the removals of liquidity. This prevents anyone from doing like, you know, rugging of liquidity from underneath the trade. It prevents a lot of like the the liquidity sandwiching that's happening because it's like, okay, all liquidity gets added at at a fair time. You know, you can actually allow your app layer to be smarter of like, you don't have to just like run, let the VM, the generalized blockchain choose the order of, 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 I was at this like, uh, retreat where we were talking about a bunch of MEV stuff and like what are MEV mitigation strategies that like Uniswap could build, uh, based on Ethereum. And what we've realized after like talking for hours was like th- there's really not a lot they can do unless they have more control over the blockchain itself.
3: Uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, I think we've covered, you know, whether it's a couple of things under scalability, you know, we have. You know, increased UX, uh, better UX, uh, through things like custom fees and, and transaction reordering and, you know, really user protection. Um, and, and Dimitri, you also wrote about value accrual, um, in, in a great piece on, on AppChain. So, uh, a couple weeks, a couple months ago, I'm not sure when it came out, but is there anything you want to speak to there on, on the value accrual side?
4: On that side, I think if you use the thought experiment of to say, like, if, I mean, we kind of see it with, Osmo, I guess, but um, if there was like a uni chain, like do they need to turn on the fee switch? And I would argue maybe not if the transaction fees are paid in their native uni token, which also serves as a security model. Because um, that's another implicit way to uh, accrue value. Um, it's not that you need an implicit um, uh, fee switch. It's that the demand for the application turns... Uh, in turn re- results in demand for the native token because you need that to actually, uh, uh, transact on that chain. Um, so that's like a more crypto native, uh, uh, business model that a lot of, uh, depending on the developer, they, uh, uh, they need to think about. Um, another dynamic is that, uh, a app chain could effectively fork other, Uh, protocols and monetize within their own ecosystem. Um, I think we've seen some interesting analogies to kind of what Axie did with Ronin, where they have their own decks, they have their own marketplace, Um, they're able to um, uh, capture value from the usage of that. And they have users because they, they provide In application with content that, um, uh, is able to amass like a large, like user base of players. Um, so a lot of these DeFi protocols, like it's just code, right? Like you could take what you need, um, uh, package that into, um, a, a verticalized, um, application. Um, and as long as you're providing, uh, value to your, your end user, um, it's a way for uh uh for you to uh like keep that like within your uh ecosystem. Um I, I think the last part, um we kind of alluded to MED, you know, like I'm I haven't spoken with like the DYDX team. I don't know if they're doing this, but you could have like it's a round robin consensus, you know, like you could have, you know, like if you get every market maker uh to be a a validator um on the DYDX chain, uh that's their business model there too. You know, it's a round-robin consensus for like who who for uh, for block inclusion. Um and so you have a way for uh uh for market makers to you know pay for their like the, the the cost that they have for for validating
0: the chain. Hey everyone quick break from Empire to tell you about another Blockworks channel that I know you're gonna love. I've been in crypto full time for five years and have always struggled with one thing, which is keeping up with the next big trend. As soon as I wrap my head around MEV, we're on to app chains. As soon as I wrap my head around app chains, we're on to liquid staking derivatives. I'm sure you've been there. Blockworks Research has solved that problem for me. Our team puts research, data, governance, proposal updates, models, and more into one really easy to use platform so I can always stay ahead of the curve. If I don't understand something, for example, I just pull up the platform, I can search for an L1, I can search for a protocol, pull up the platform at blockworksresearch.com, I search the term, there's always an amazing amount of insight in a really consumable way. Uh, Right now you can subscribe to the platform, it's $2,500 a year or $900 a quarter, hopefully you can uh, make more than $208 a month by using the platform, if you can't you're probably in the wrong business. But if you're not ready to subscribe to the platform today, you can subscribe to the research team's free newsletter. Uh, you can follow their Twitter handles today. Links in the show notes. Trust me, once you do that, you're going to want to subscribe to the platform. If you are ready to, uh, to subscribe right now, I got you guys with a little hookup. Empire listeners get a 10% discount for the first 50 people who use the code Empire10. Got your back. Check out the links in the, sh- in the description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the show.
2: So just to, just to kind of sum up, you know, where, where we are so far, uh, cause I want to get into eventually like some of the, the arguments for why this might not make sense, right? Or what are some of the detractions against sort of the app chain thesis? But, you know, Sunny, we kind of started with this, this high level observation that, and this is a dynamic that exists in plenty of traditional markets outside of tech, value tends to accrue to the, the layer that's closest to the consumer, right? There's that whoever is closest to the consumer, be it an app in web two or like a financial advisor in, in finance or whatever it is, they tend to have a lot of leverage, right? And then they sort of uh, exert that leverage down the chain. And that implicitly challenges some frameworks that I think a lot of people have in crypto, which again kind of goes back to that Joel Monegro piece, uh, you know, fat protocols. Um so if you kind of start with that, and then you talk about some of the uh Dimitri, I think thought you grouped these advantages into three really nice groups, which is sort of performance, which is this idea of like, app-specific versus general block space, right? Like even like the other side landment that shut down Ethereum, not in 2017, but last year, right? So there are still huge challenges for uh, performance in generalized blockchains. There's also uh, value capture, which Dimitri, you were just sort of talking to. Then there's customizability, which Sunny, you were getting into with uh, basically the advantages of having validators that only are on your specific network. So these are all like huge benefits, right? But walk me through like, what are some of the downsides necessarily of um running an app-specific blockchain as opposed to like bootstrapping on Ethereum?
4: Yeah, I, I could talk to a couple. Um, and the, the issues that are present today, I guess just to preface, are not uh, insurmountable. I think that there are are, are ways to, uh, to kind of go about uh, solving some of these. Um, and it is also different within the ecosystems as well. Um, I think the biggest one that comes to mind is... Um, like limited composability and, uh, uh, having, m- making it more difficult to do, um, atomicity across different chains, which is like you, like you want an all or nothing execution of a transaction. Um, I think, uh, there are ways to, uh, uh, uh to get around that. Um, but it does add, uh, some additional like developer friction. Um, there's also a UX friction you know if you have um if if you require a user to bridge funds uh onto some other chain or some other rollup um uh, i think that is uh something that we need to solve to uh, uh to make sure that it is as fluid as possible um and i think like the bridging experience to, today is not um uh particularly uh, accommodating to like new users of chains, like it's a pretty scary um, uh, thing for 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 people to do. Um, another is like the like the thought experiment: um, if you use, uh, you know, if every application uh, today, like on Ethereum, um, uh, were to create their own um, uh, app chain, and they said. Uh, uh, you know what? I only want, um, permissioned right access. Um, I, I, I want to control who gets to do stuff on my app chain. Um, how is that different than the world where we came from? Where, where it's like, it's permissioned, um, now, and now we're just like recreating that set of permissioning in the, uh, for the goal of like value capture and, and, and I guess like scalability and, and, and all of that other good stuff. Um, and that's like an ecosystem wide question I don't quite know the answer to like like how you balance that. Um, uh, maybe there's a case that uh, uh, it might make sense for certain flavors of of companies maybe more like enterprisey uh, 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 companies want their uh, more strict permissions on on right access and maybe there's uh, uh, benefits to actually like opening it up for for other um, uh, projects. Um, so that, uh, that that's a couple, um, I think like the liquidity fragmentation um, uh, part is also an issue. Um, uh, if you have, you know, 10 different uh, AMMs on 10 different like, I don't know, Cosmos chains or Ethereum rollups, like, ha- like, how does that affect um, the I guess like performance or, or, um, uh, like capital efficiency of the system as a whole. And, 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 and how do you solve for, um, uh, cross chain, cross roll up, um, uh, liquidity pools in a way where, where you're, you're, you're preserving that experience for, um, end users. Um, so, so so there's a bunch of things there. I guess like I'll stop to, to see if, uh, if Sunny has any other things to add.
1: Yeah, I think that was a really good rundown. Um, I can talk about some of what I see as biggest current issues with app chains uh, and then a little bit of like why, you know, what we're doing to help solve those issues. Um, So, you know, one of the first obvious ones that I think we actually ran into was, you know, for a long time, the Cosmos SDK was very like, almost anti VM, right? We were like, oh, you know, everything will be done in the Cosmos SDK and native Go code and, you know, all your app logic is there. And then we realized that there's actually things that people do want to customize, right? Like, you know, uh, every time someone wants to create a new type of multi-sig or something like that, right? Like, you know, there's an argument that app chains aren't extensible enough, right? And like, so what we realize and you know maybe other people want to build integrations into your application right osmosis is a dex people wanted to build extensions on top of the dex, right people wanted to build a dollar cost averaging system or people wanted to build like a market making vault or something like that how do you let people build extensions onto your system um and the solution that we kind of came but, was well okay well first step one was like okay well let's add a vm right so there's a vm called cosmosum exists on the osmosis chain but it's like okay then how do you did we just become a generalized smart contracting chain at that point right so i think what the balance that we figured out was actually osmosis does something a little bit unique in blockchains where we have a smart contracting system But the uploading of new contracts has to be permissioned by, is permissioned by governance. So you have to make a governance proposal to add contracts. So it's like, you know, what this does is it kind of keeps it like an app chain where it's like, oh, okay, we're only going to allow things that extend the functionality of our core feature set, which is the decks. Um, You know, we're not going to approve in a competing decks to be deployed on the same blockchain for sure but we're not gonna you know someone wants to go deploy a game or something it's like know, the osmosis isn't the right place to do that go go build another app chain for that or go deploy somewhere else right like we want to focus our thing on use keep our block space for like the things that improve the decks experience so by having that sort of permission system that's like one way we, we we've sort of solved that extensibility sort of issue um and Another one is like composability. So, you know, uh, Dimitri mentioned like, okay, this like lack of atomic composability between things. And, you know, one thing I push back on is this notion that composability is, means atomicity or synchronicity, right? I don't like, it has, yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, if you look at the web, you know, the web is relatively pretty composable, right? Like you can have APIs that talk to each other, but like, All of the web is built off of asynchronous programming right like you know the entire web is not running on a synchronous server right it's like the entire web is based off of people making asynchronous calls into other services and having callbacks and stuff and yes it's more annoying but it is what is necessary in order to like build any sort of like scalable system and and the composability thing isn't really even in my opinion an argument an app chain specific thing, right? Even if you had like many roll ups or something that were generalized blockchain, you still need to deal with asynchronous like uh composability, right? If you have a contract on Optimism that's trying to call a contract on Arbitrum, you still need to build in the same asynchronous composability like building blocks. And so I would just say that I think the Cosmos ecosystem, the IBC stack is probably the furthest along when it comes to building any of these like uh asynchronous first uh building block. So, you know, that's that's another one. Um another big uh kind of issue that we run into is like standardization. It's almost ironic cuz so, you know, like I said our team actually builds one of the most popular wall- wallets for the Cosmos ecosystem and sort of part of this whole pitch to of app change is like, hey, you can come customize everything you want. Uh, you want to go change how You know your staking module works go for it if you want to go change how governance works on your chain go for it you want to change how transfers and work work on your or cryptography works on your chain go for it but then being the wallet developers we're like guys please don't change too much because like it sucks every time you know we need to go make a custom integration and like, oh, you change the cryptography, okay, we got to go build a customer integration for that. You change the uh, how the staking module works. Okay, well, our staking dashboard doesn't work for that anymore. And so it's like this, this. Um, so yeah, this like tooling based issue is actually sort of one of the biggest challenges that I'm not actually sure I have a great answer for today. And is actually one of the biggest, almost not not threats, but, you know, big open questions on how how we how we deal with app chains going forward, right? Like, you don't want a world where every time someone builds a new app chain that like, it it's too different than everyone else. Oh, does that mean they have to now go build their own wallet? Or does that mean that like, you know, your favorite staking dashboard doesn't work with it or something like that? So how do you balance these things? I think that's a big, big thing that does sort of need to be figured out, I would say um yeah i think those are some of the big ones i have a couple others as well you know security um you know scope creep i think is a big issue as well like you know even osmosis you know it started off as this dex but now we have this lending protocol building on top of it we also have like you know a couple other it's like at what point do we actually start to over evolve and let scope creep, turn us away from being an app chain. And like, what, at that point, what is the depth, what, what, do we even mean by app chain when we have this sort of like sort of little ecosystem of other projects building on top? So I think that's another, another yeah. big thing that yeah. like, just to
4: follow up on a couple of those points for, um, so atomicity, I, atomic composability, one area where it's probably particularly useful is in the DeFi sense around like market efficiency around flash loans. Um like like that's probably a special thing um where where it, it particularly benefits. Um in the rollup space, um I think you might be able to pull this off if you have like a shared sequencer set um across like 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 different uh, uh roll-ups. I haven't seen that done uh in in practice. Uh and we like like we don't have an example of a decentralized sequencer yet. Um, but I can imagine if there's like a like a roll-up. That has um, uh, an AMM and another rollup that has a money market, um, and both are the same sequencers. Then, then they might be able to to actually like do those transactions atomically. Um, I think the idea around like uh, tooling is super important because also for a um, like an app chain. Needs a couple of components that will let, like, let it function out of the box. Um, okay. uh, w- which could include, like, a block explorer, an RPC provider, an indexer, an Oracle. Um, to your point, Sunny, you could internalize, like, some of these things and bake it in. Um, if you have something, uh, uh that's as customizable as, like, the Cosmos SDK. Um, but if you were to, Uh, uh, maybe like fork optimism and just like launch like a roll up like you like you probably need to find ways to um, add those additional components um, for your like users and developers. Um, So that's like an an additional lift around like overall like developer lift that um, that you need to uh, uh, to think about. Um, And I I guess a final uh, interesting observation is that like with uh, with customizability, um, it probably depends on the persona of the developer of like how much composability or uh, customizability do they want or need. Um, I I I, I kind of get this feeling that um, for for many developers it could be overkill to 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 customize like everything. Like maybe it's just a game that wants their game as like the native gas token, and like they probably don't know about MEV, like they don't really care about like like transaction ordering, like that's all they want to, you know, make number go up. Um, So, so for them, maybe they just want like a more, like a simple out of the box solution. Uh, And, and I think like that is probably a UX challenge that needs to be solved for this more like, I don't know, mainstream developer.
3: I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, we've heard about like the bootstrapping costs. Um, there was one thing I wanted to kind of double click in uh, here, and that was on the permissioning side, um, because I think a lot of what we've talked about is when you don't have control over your block space, when you can't curate your block space, and. You become very successful and you attract a lot of users. You're going to have a lot of random stuff that just starts popping up on your chain, right? Whether it's an NFT project on a would be DeFi app chain or, or, you know, a game on a DeFi app chain that takes up all the block space. You know, this can be kind of defeat the purpose in some ways of an app chain. Um, and so would you guys just would, do you think that permissioning governance you know based permissioning is actually a prerequisite to to call it an app chain uh, you know under the definition of an app chain
1: i think it's important to uh sort of protect the app chain especially to protect the block space especially um like the other things maybe it doesn't matter so much uh, uh it, it's almost like a a part of the other reason that we you know the permissioning is important not only to protect the block space it's also it like protects your innovation rate as well, because you know, in my opinion, I think like part of the reason ethereum development like kind of goes so slow is it has to deal with the interests of the ten thousand applications built on top, you know, and we've had, well, and we've had situations in the past where like ethereum has broken people's smart contracts right like i remember like back in one of the uh hard forks like a bunch of the aragon contracts broke because there was a change in how gas uh gas code like gas pricing worked and so it's like you know we and you know Vitalik gave a talk at ECC this year where he was almost like oh you know prepare to have things break for for your developer, you know, your contracts break, which is kind of weird because on one hand we're like pushing for immutable contracts, but it's like, okay, on the other hand, we have to be be prepared for these contracts to break potentially. And so when you deal with an app chain with with Osmosis, you know, before we added Cosmosm, we had to, we had to own, the only people we had to talk to uh, at least on a contract, on like a builder on the chain side builders is like, ourselves, right? It's like, okay, you know, we have, is our, but, and, you know, we have to go talk to some integrators, we have to go talk to block explorers and stuff like that. But on the, on the actual chain development side, that we only have to talk to ourselves. Today, if we have to go change something in how something works on osmosis, right? Let's say threshold decryption, uh, comes alive and, but, you know, the way that people cr- generate transactions has to change. Today, we only have to go talk to about 20 maybe maximum 20 projects right because like there's only 20 other builders building on top of the osmosis chain uh, and that with that is a feasible thing for us to do as opposed to like ethereum where there's no way for them to like they, they basically can't innovate because they can't break anyone built on top and so i think that's one of like the big benefits of the permissioning is that we we, we protect our uh liabilities here uh, to, to external developers.
4: That's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find another argument here. I guess if you look at it from like a free markets perspective, I wonder if you could bake in um, like incentive mechanisms and, and actually like the design of the app chain to just like make it either more or less um, uh, attractive for like other contracts to deploy. You know, like, if you have, uh, uh, if you adjust the opcodes to, like, if you change the pricing in the opcodes to make it, like, very cheap to swap and, like, very expensive to do other things, then uh, you've kind of set up your chain to be, um, uh, to, to work better with applications that have to do with that core mechanism. And and then you could kind of say, okay, like like we're permissionless, like deploy if you want here, but it's going to be really bad for your users because it's going to cost a lot to do the thing that you want to do. So so I wonder if you could like get these benefits by having um, by 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 baking your opinions um, into like the actual like design of uh, of like the block space.
1: Yeah. So this I imagine will happen actually. So um, you know eventually what we want Osmosis to do is. Batch all trades, right? Like all trades that happen in a block should be batched together and get equal pricing. Which works easily in a world where all trades are executed by users. But in a world where some trades are executed by contracts, things actually get a little bit more complicated and messy, right? Because what happens when a trade, uh, uh, you know, so, so, so what we actually end up having to do is we, you know, we've been thinking about how do we architect architect a block. Is what we actually have to do is take every transaction that, like, it's got hit by a contract. We've first run the contract. Uh, so one thing that's worth noting is the way Cosmosm is designed is it's actually designed to be asynchronous, non atomic by default, uh, because it was really designed as a cross chain. Uh, contracting system. So it's like, oh, you know, you want to be able to have one Cosmosm contract call the Cosmosm contract on a different chain, almost as easily as it calls a contract on the same chain. But so what will happen when Osmosis implements the batching system is we actually run the first part of a contract. If it if it um, executes a swap, we, we we basically hold that swap, run everyone else's contracts. Then we take all the dispatch swaps execute them at the same time, and then we go and run the completion of everyone else's transactions. This is such a different paradigm to like normal smart contracting today where, you know, you expect your transaction to like run beginning to end before going to the next person's transaction. But, but you know, it's like, no, we're designing the way the block space works to be optimized for what the needs of the decks is. And it's the responsibility of the things built on top to sort of adapt to that.
2: I want to get a sense from from the two of you, like, uh, again, almost like maybe zooming out and looking a little bit towards the future. Um, you know, one one topic that we wanted to get your guys' opinion on is this idea that, you know, let's, with caveating the understanding that there are other communities outside of Cosmos that are necessarily just pushing for you know, app chains, right, as an idea, uh, but we're going to focus largely on Cosmos. And then there are other, you know, layer ones outside of Ethereum that are kind of providing like broad-based security and data availability and all that kind of stuff. But just using those as the two sort of canonical uh starting points for a similar problem, which is how do we scale and get billions of people using applications and then have them secured and write the appropriate architecture underneath? Like, how how do you guys kind of see, like, just to use these two ecosystems as an example, like, Cosmos and Ethereum kind of coming together, right? Like there's a whole bunch of different spectrums of how this might play out, but like, how do you see these two communities like, uh, sort of evolving and interacting with each other over the next, the, the sort of coming years?
4: Yep. I think from my perspective, it's like an order of operations. Um, I, I, I think there's almost like a, um, a question that is based on the maturity of the app. Um, I think like an interesting observation that I've seen for DeFi protocols um, and some others is that um, on Ethereum, they are launching on L2s first. Um, I, I, I think that's an interesting reverse of uh, the operations because usually a application would launch on eth 1 first. Um, super expensive, but maybe they need like the security and that's where like the users are. Um, so they would uh, uh, launch their application there, um, gather some feedback, and then say, "Hey, like these fees are 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 too too high, or or we could do um, more things with their application if like gas fees are lower. Maybe it's cheaper um, for the Oracle updates. Um, so then they move to um, AL2, um, and then." If they are successful, then they, they start to say, okay, we have more users. We need more scalability. Uh, maybe we need more customizability. Um, then what do we do? Uh, and I, in my view, that's where the, the decision tends to be like very relevant around the crossover where, where, where they might say, Hey, do I launch like my own like dedicated L2? Um, do I just fork optimism? Do I launch, assuming this is built out, um, as a L3 on ZK Sync or StarkNet, um, or it is that not sufficient? And, and for, for a lot of the reasons that like that Sunny mentioned, like, do I need my own like full stack, uh, Cosmos chain? Um, and there are other options too. Like, do I launch my own like Avalanche subnet? Do I go on my own like, like Polkadot parachain? Um... I think that, uh, that decision for, um, for teams becomes more relevant the larger they get. Um, and, and I think like we've, we've seen that with, um, Axie with Ronin and DYDX. Um, uh, I think like as you get more scale. So, and, and like, like this is a very, I mean, it's probably like more controversial, but like my, my, my view of, chains for 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 successful cosmos app chains might be more mature ethereum based applications that need more customizability, dedicated block space, things like that
2: That's kind of an interesting framing because you know at the risk of being overly reductive, you could almost view ethereum as like a launch pad uh, for dapps and then once you get a dApp with six you know critical mass or whatever it is. And it decides, okay, we haven't really talked about this dynamic of Ethereum being distribution and where the users are is a reason for it being attractive, right? Um, but maybe dApps kind of start there. And then when they get to some point when either the, you know, the pain of not being able to, you know, customize the way, you know, users interface with your app, or maybe you just want the economics and you want to vertically integrate, but whatever that like sort of threshold is, you pass it and the most successful. In that paradigm, it sounds like some of the most successful dApps actually end up moving off Ethereum. That actually sounds a little bit, it could be could be bearish, right? You, you don't hear people often say something like that, but um, I don't know if that that was the right way to take how you just said that, Dimitri. Yeah,
4: I mean, I think, um, I'm not sure if it's bearish in the sense that they will still have options um, on uh, on a lot of other factors. Like, for example, security, you know, like like what... Like, what are your security guarantees for like your own like settlement layer um, uh, uh, versus using like Ethl one as a settlement layer? Like, that's a very important question for for potentially like DeFi protocols. Um, and and how much um, are you willing to pay for that security? And even if you do uh, uh, subsidize that with token rewards, um, uh, is that a sufficient? Uh, uh, security level that you're getting from uh, uh Ethereum block space uh, at, as being like a settlement layer. Um so so I think it's like still very application specific. It might be harder to uh to make that case for like a DeFi protocol um uh that like that has you know billions in 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 TVL maybe. Um but I think your like your point uh around uh, distribution is an important one, because if you're going to like a separate island, um, like you want to make sure you're you're able to like carry like all these users that you're providing like a valuable enough thing for them to like, like, move, you know, like to buy that ticket to like go to like the other um, uh, uh, like to, to, to go on the island. Um, uh, so So I think like, that's why it's, it's a harder case for a lot of Applications because in general, I don't think we have um, like that much critical mass for for a lot uh, for a lot of users uh, 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 today that actually um, like transact. We're probably in like the hundreds of thousands, maybe for like DeFi protocols, maybe more for like play-to-earn games. uh, With a certain example of like Axie, Um, but I think we have a long way to go for there to be enough uh, users with any application for them to um, uh, make the case that, Hey, I want to move to like my own, um, like my own dedicated app chain, like off of, um, uh, Ethereum. Um, I think that it's, it's going to be a more and more relevant question, um, over time, but, but I don't think like the, it's as clear cut as saying, Oh, like I got, uh, you know, I'm big enough now it's time for me to like pack my bags and like go to, Like a different ecosystem. There's like a lot under the hood, like behind that decision.
1: To the original question of like, you know, uh, so I I would say that, like, okay, the Ethereum ecosystem versus Cosmos ecosystem is almost like an independent thing of app chains versus generalized uh, uh, chains, right? I think it's almost actually like a quadrant because within Cosmos, you have both app chains and you have generalized blockchains, right? You have app chains, you have Osmosis, you have Stargaze, you have Akash, you have all these app chains, but you also have generalized blockchains like Juno and uh Terra 2.0 and Archway and Evmos, right? Some of them are EVM-based or, uh, you know, there's actually multiple EVM-based ones, right? There's Kava, there's um, Kanto, you know, there's like, there's actually, so we have this within the Cosmos ecosystem. And then within the Ethereum ecosystem, you also have you know, let's, let's talk about like rollups, right? You have both generalized rollups. You have optimism and arbitrum, and you know all this stuff. Then you also have application specific rollups. You have DYDX, and you have, um, you know, Loopring, and. Ronin, I would consider an an application specific kind of. Uh, A lot of Starkware stuff is really targeted at building, you know, very app chain focused roll up. So, you know, I think this is almost like a quadrant. So, you know, I think we've talked a lot about like the app, the app chain versus generalized stuff. So on the Ethereum versus Cosmos, if I, if you have to like put like, I think there's two sort of main differences here. I would say that we're kind of actually heading towards the same direction right now. Um, I think we, I think the Cosmos ecosystem had to pull Ethereum in the right direction a little bit. I think like, you know, today, you know, you have to keep in mind that like today, oh, the world is multi-chained. You know, this seems so obvious. Five years ago, when we started working on Cosmos, it wasn't. This was like a radical thing and no one believed us. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, you guys are right. Um, and you know, I think there's other, you know, I think the same thing's going to happen with app change. You know, every people still believe in these, you know, everyone's like, oh, generalized rollups you know, multi-chain, but it's like, no, okay, you guys are wrong about that. Um, So I think they're going in the same direction. I think the two big change, one of the big changes between the focus of Cosmos versus of Ethereum is Cosmos. We kind of took a lower emphasis on the security relationships between these chains and decided to focus our efforts on the application layer composability between these chains. We said that like, you know what? We can we can hide we can bootstrap using sovereign security. Uh, you know, every chain can have its own validator set. Uh let's focus and we'll we'll solve that. That problem does need to be solved at some point. How do we scale security? But we can solve that pro we, we have time before we we run into the bottlenecks there. Let's focus on like how do we build really good cross-chain composability? How do you have a contract on one chain, call a contract on another chain? How do you have a Decks on one chain, or how do you have like a lending protocol on one chain do liquidations on a dex on a different chain right? These are things that like in my opinion, the Ethereum ecosystem just has not been thinking about at all. Um, meanwhile, what the Ethereum ecosystem has been thinking most of spending most of their mental energy on is on that security relationship side, right? i you know they're the farthest ahead on when it comes on developing. Validity proofs and fraud proofs and like roll up architectures and stuff. And like, I think both sides are starting to work on other, on each other's expertise point. You know, I think we're st- maybe, I, I haven't seen too much of it yet, but I'm hoping like people are starting to think a little bit more about composability on the, e- on the Ethereum EVM to EVM world. I know in the Cosmos world, we're definitely starting to think about security, how do we like scale security, whether it's going through things like Celestia for data availability, you know, shared security systems, you know, we propose this idea of mesh security. Um, So, you know, I think, I know in Cosmos, we definitely are starting to think a lot more about it. And I guess the thing is one of our uh, exploration points is that unlike Ethereum, where there's like one chain, one, one chain to rule them all, one token at the center of its security system, which is like ETH, Uh, Cosmos, there's no one token at the center of it, right? Like this whole mesh security paradigm is really focused around this idea of like, oh, we have all of these many Cosmos chains. How can they sort of like pool their security together? I call it like the empire model versus the NATO model, right? An empire uh, has a single military and it provides security for all of its colonies. While in NATO, you have a bunch of sovereign countries. They all have their own militaries, but they form alliances where they have, like, you know, pool their economic strength together to provide, like, a larger security umbrella. So I think that's sort of, like, the main difference, I would say, between the Ethereum model of the world and how security works and how the Cosmos model of the world works. Um Yeah. I want to – I can also talk about, like, this – uh the the user on the user uh, onboarding stuff but maybe i'll you guys talk talk about that so what i said first so far
3: yeah no i think i think that a big part of this thesis for this season is really that cosmos and ethereum are, are some, on somewhat of a collision course in that sense but coming from very different um starting points right With cosmos really taking an interoperability at the application layer first approach and we can start to see the power of things like interchain accounts right that's that's more or less recreating the level of composability that you would see between apps built on the same chain um, and then on you know on the cosmos side we're also starting to see you know the introduction of things like mesh security um and and you know uh the consumer chains that are renting security from from the cosmos hub um i would say you know do you see for this future to play out on the Ethereum side, there need to be some equivalent of IBC or, or is it more going to be, I think, Dimitri, you referenced shared sequencers between apps that commonly interact with each other. Um, do you see it, you know, everybody sharing one standard like you do on the Cosmos side, or do you think it's going to be more kind of bottoms up, you know, sector specific sequencer, you know, sets that, that help, you know, just particular types of apps inter, interop, but, you know, perhaps a, a gaming roll app on Starkware would never be able to, you know, talk to this sort of DeFi, you know, sector of roll apps.
4: It's a good question. I think the pace of the Ethereum development makes me think it'll be more like like bottoms up um, uh, like solutions. Um, I think there's ways you could get close um, with interop. I think like you have like the shared sequencer set um, is one way to do it. I think using L2s as a sediment layer for um, uh, L3s are are pretty interesting with the use of um, uh, like rec- rec- recursive uh, validity proofs. Um, there's also ways you could. Wait, but, wait, but that
1: just solves the security problem. That still doesn't, like, saying that we can use L2s as a settlement layer. Oh, so, that doesn't right.
4: So, so, so one way you could do that. So if you have, um, different L3s post, um, uh, uh, uh post the data that's needed for the proof onto a shared DA layer, um, then, then you could have the L2, um, use, uh, uh use the data from that DA layer to effectively do the bridging. Um so like one example is like how slush like there's a project called Slush. They're they're trying to implement this on uh, uh on Starknet. Um uh so so you could effectively use like a shared DA um to do to do the bridging um across different L3s. Um provided, yeah, like you have like like the data. You could also post um if it's like an optimistic rollup, you could post the like like the actual data that's needed for a fraud proof onto a shared DA. Um, you, you could also do that, um, with an L1. Uh, I mean, like, that's how implicitly, like, like bridging is done between, say, like, different, like, two different, like, ZK rollups. It's using, like, the L1 as that DA layer. Um, so, so I think we, we haven't, like, really seen implementations of this. Um, but I think that there are ways you, you could get to, um, uh, uh, sufficiently strong levels of composability, um, with the exception probably being for atomic composability, you might need that shared sequencer set or like some overlap potentially between like if you're, if you have like a decentralized uh, 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 sequencer set across different roles.
3: Do you see actual interoperability providers playing a role here? Um, You know, we'll have, maybe they all share a common standard, but I think, you know, uh, Sonny, you might be familiar with Polymer, right, who is trying to, you know, kind of introduce IBC to the EVM side. Um, do you think that, you know, that reliance on a provider, you know, project like that is is something that's scalable in the long term? Or is it mainly going to be, you know, based off of the the security of the actual roll up itself, kind of like IBC, where you're, you're you know, you get you inherit the security of the chain really for the bridge.
4: Yeah, I, I think it might depend on if we're talking about like intra or inter. Um, uh, and I think what we've seen recently with like Avalanche, like shipping their own like messaging, um, uh, uh system. I think chains probably realize this is like a very risky thing, you know, and 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 maybe it's better for uh, for users, you know, like 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 Polkadot did this with the, uh, uh, what was it called X. XCMP uh, like years ago, um, like maybe it's this realization, like, Hey, if we're within our universe, maybe we should do it ourselves. Uh, it, it doesn't solve the issue of like cross domain. Um, like, like, like once you're hopping like, like between like, like different ecosystems, I think um, that's probably where you'll, you'll, you'll still need um, like some kind of like third party um, in the very happy case. You find a way to do like scalable light like, client bridges, where you're like validating consensus on like every chain that you're like bridging to and from, but that's like not very scalable. And you have right. some I- I- ideas around like like snarking the consensus and 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 validating like a proof uh, uh, on the destination chain instead of. Um, the actual, like, light client. Um, uh, the issue there is extensibility. Like, how fast can you build this for, like, all the different permutations? You know? Um, yeah. so it's, it, it's a really tough problem to solve. Um, but I think there's, there will still be a role. Um, like, I, I, I think hundred percent for third party bridge providers as it relates to cross domain interop. Um and then Jerry is still out how individual ecosystems, w- which could include like AL2, like how ZK Sync or how Starknet wants to think about like intra within you know, or how Optimism Bedrock is thinking about it.
2: So um guys, you've both been super generous with your time here. And I think um, you know, as we as we start to wind down, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, I think, uh, you know, kind of talking about this idea of like fat, or I know some of you like to refer to them as tall apps specifically and where value might accrue. Talked about some of the pros and cons, right, of app chains as opposed to other sorts of architectures and this sort of collision course idea between Ethereum and, and Cosmos. Just if, if either you guys have like sort of ending thoughts or something that you want the audience to, to walk away with when it comes to app chains could be thoughts about like, you know, where they're headed in the future or even next 12 months, just anything that you want to sort of bookend the conversation with.
1: I just want to add one last point about the like user, uh, Thing that we were discussing a, a little bit ago as well about like, oh, all, all the, all you know, you deploy on Ethereum or on the Ethereum ecosystem, whether that's L2s, because that's where the users are. You know, like I said at the beginning, I actually don't think people are users of Ethereum. I think they're users of applications, but also more importantly, they're users of MetaMask. People, I think I think the lock-in isn't actually Ethereum. The lock-in is MetaMask. And today, what makes... An Ethereum L2 like Polygon easier to use than Cosmos uh, like Osmosis is that you don't have to download a new wallet right because you already are already have MetaMask installed and the process of switching uh at things on on the wallet is actually is becoming easier and easier right um so you know this is um, and I think you can actually I think that this is something that we're starting to realize in uh, Cosmos like you know we probably should build better integration support with existing Ethereum tooling that people are comfortable with if we want to make the switching costs lower. So for example, with Osmosis, we are you know, like, Injective does this, for example. Injective is a Cosmos space DEX. They don't actually use Kepler as their primary wallet. They actually use MetaMask as their primary wallet. Uh, and like, same thing with Evmos. And like, so I, you know, one thing we're working on Osmosis is making it so that um, you can use, you know, you, you're bridging assets from Ethereum, you can just, Start using it with your MetaMask, right? You it should feel like any other, like Polygon or any other Ethereum EVM chain, right? Even though it's not an EVM under the hood, so that's like one one big thing that we're doing. And, but that at the same time, we like you know we do need to balance this with like you know there's a reason we build our own wallet called Kepler because we have like views on like how. Crypto custody is supposed to work and stuff that, met. you know, we, we don't want to be the same reason that we have an app chain that we want to be able to innovate at the application layer at the blockchain layer. We also have our own wallet because we want to be able to innovate at the wallet layer. But I think so. It's a little bit of both. You know, the, how do we get people to on board with MetaMask and be like, OK, cool. Now you're using our sources. Uh by the way, if you want to use all the coolest features of Osmosis, you should switch over to using this other wallet instead. Uh, but yeah, so I think that fixing that onboarding flow with the wallets will be a big part of like bringing people from Ethereum into Cosmos, and any app chain really.
4: Yeah, I think on my side, I don't think there's a right answer. I think we've been like researching for that, and I think like the boring answer is like, oh, like there's no one right answer. You know, like it's not for um, like every developer um uh and i think there's a lot of trade-offs you know from a uh a developer perspective that they need to 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 think about around like what's your security source uh like what like how do you want to deal with permissioning do you need finality like what do you want to do with like your like your gas token how much composability do you need uh do you need evm support um, and I think like these are all, uh, questions, um, that, uh, different applications and different developers might answer, um, in a different way. Um, so I think, uh, this is all along a spectrum. And I think there's, um, a, a multi-year, um, play out in the market structure that, um, that we're going to see. Um, so I don't think like we have the answers now. Um, I think there's interesting projects coming out that are, um, providing, um, SDKs for, uh, for developers to launch their own, um, app chains, which could be ZK rollups, uh, using Celestia as DA um uh sovereign roll-ups um uh uh sovereign optimistic roll-ups um that use Celestia as a da ethereum uh uh, uh roll-ups that use Eigenlayer layer as a da um so I think we're gonna see a lot of these solutions come out and I think we're we're gonna start to get some of the answers just through like observing what developers will do so I think like it'll be interesting to to revisit this uh in say like twelve to eighteen months and and actually see like what we got right or wrong about the market structure.
2: Guys, this has been uh, fascinating. You've given us and our audience a lot to uh think about. So thank you both for helping Miles and I kick off season one. And and if uh and if folks want to find out more about you or follow the work that you're doing, or what's the best way to to sort of get more information on the two of you?
4: D Barrens it on Twitter, D B E R E N Z O
2: N.
1: Sunny a97 on twitter and you can follow uh osmosis at uh osmosis
2: zone awesome guys all right thanks so much we'll have to check back in 18 months see how much uh if we sounded smart or uh way overly optimistic but have feeling
3: optimistic myself. All
2: right, partner, episode one in the books. What do we think?
3: thought that was great. I thought, um, you know, I think Sonny did a great job in the beginning of just running through the most compelling reasons to build, you know, an application on an app chain uh, or as an app chain. Um, you know, I think as well, we'll dig into later. We'll, we'll see how many of these benefits still apply when you start to make that you know, tall app, less tall. Maybe it's, maybe it's an app specific roll up and that only allows you to do, you know, 75, 90% of these things. Um, maybe it's less. I think that's still pretty unexplored and, and also depends a lot on, uh, you know, developments to interoperability and basically the things that kind of mitigate the con side that, that Dimitri, uh, dug into and covered really well.
2: I agree with you. It's, it's fun. Like I, I really liked his sort of opening. You know, even before getting into what is an app chain, having to make the case that applications matter, which is such a funny, <laughs> uh, you know, caveat to have yeah. to include. But I think, I thought his observation was completely right that, you know, Joel Manegro wrote this post, fat protocols, you know, fat protocol thesis a long time ago. Um, you know, before, you know, at, 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 a, at a time when crypto is way less developed than it is today. And I think a lot of the industry implicitly believes that. Basically, and that's why you have these large and really engaged communities around Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and some of the Layer Ones, and and also you know to to the industry's credit as well. If you were like trying to analyze returns, the L Ones have been by far the best performing you know asset class or sector within crypto. Uh, even like on Ethereum, the apps denominated in ETH is like down only, right? They basically launch and then it's. <laughs>
3: Exactly, Uh, exactly. But yeah, framing it in terms of, okay, you know, actually these aren't Ethereum users. These are Uniswap users. These are OpenSea users. These are MetaMask users, right? That's the value of Ethereum, right? Is, Is based off of the amount of activity and the applications on top really determine how much activity there will be right um and so as these apps get more users and more traction and, and more leverage frankly to take their users where they want to go because the apps are the stickiest layer you know it will be it'll be very interesting to see if these you know, how many migrate to cosmos to get more of these benefits that Sunny's talking about versus how many of them migrate to their own app specific roll up or or you know maybe sector specific roll up um but really, you know, reframing the conversation back to the applications and back to where the users are. I think that's kind of the whole point of this, of this season, right?
2: I, I would even call it like, it's a reorientation in a lot of people's minds, right? Which is like this sort of maybe you were starting from this point that you didn't even realize, which was, Oh, these are the rails and values going to accrue here. And then there'll be some interesting apps to so like ultimately people use apps. And you're right that that phrase that Sonny used right at the end there. I love the way he. I love the way he framed that because it's actually how I felt as being a user in DeFi. And for those of you who are listening, Miles has been in some ways my, my sort of a guru shaman, uh, you know, sherping <laughs> me on, on my own on-chain journey, and you've helped me a lot. But, you know, I've had the, you know, I've had the feeling when I'm using these apps, like this, this is not the end state here, right? Like me yeah. messing around on like Ethereum main chain is like not what we're building towards here. I'm not the natural user of this, right? So right. I totally agree. You want to use an application, be it a game or an NFT or something that doesn't even necessarily exist yet. But, you know, the way people operate and view themselves as an ETH user and you're doing all this stuff, that's not going to be the end
3: yeah yeah and i think and i think today still there are far more users of of centralized right crypto services than there are of decentralized crypto services and i think you know osmosis stated mission is to build you know the binance uh on chain right and and in order to recreate that user experience the performance um you know that that is the reason why they're building as an app chain they think that the, it is and it also user privacy all these little things right um and so I think, you know, that reorientation is, is, is really helpful in understanding why anybody is building as app chains when, you know, ostensibly they kind of live on an island and make people jump through a bunch of hoops at the moment just on port. But, um, you know, the best version of them probably is the closest thing we can get to these centralized, you know, products, but you don't have to deal with all the trust of centralized products. And one word that we didn't
2: we didn't really use during that interview, but you and I uh, sort of use in a somewhat joking way, but it's kind of this idea of like product maximalism, right? There's been no shortage of of maximalism in in crypto, but usually that centers around like an L1 ecosystem like Bitcoin or ETH or something like that. Whereas this kind of, and Cosmos, I think, even though they don't really call it this, they sort of pioneered this idea, right? Which is like a relentless focus on the product and the user experience. And and I think that's going to be a theme that's going to run through, you know, hopefully all of these... All of these episodes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's where you and I are coming from. We don't have, you know, any ideological bias about which chain it should be built on. We frankly don't care. We we just care that there are, you know, products that people actually want to use, and that's what's going to drive, you know, the mass adoption of decentralized applications.
2: If you start from that kind of uh, that high point of product maximization, ultimately we want apps that you know hundreds of millions, eventually billions of people use. Then underneath that. Right, there's a whole bunch of things that need to that need to happen. Right. You could call it kind of the architecture of of like an app chain underneath, or you could call it the security model. But ultimately, if you're if an app is very focused on kind of the execution environment at the top, then there's like uh data availability, there's consensus, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen underneath. And that was sort of where we were getting into the Ethereum approach or starting point versus the Cosmos. Starting point.
3: 100%. And that's, that's really where the spectrum also that Dimitri was talking about plays out, right? Um, because at the, the end of the day, I, I do agree with this definition of an app chain is just, you know, an application that owns its, you know, has dedicated block space and it can curate, right? That, that block space Mm -hmm. and and optimize it for its own application. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of different flavors of, of these app specific environments. Um, and that's, you know, peeling back kind of the, the current, trade-offs um to each specific flavor of it is something we can dig into this season and also thinking about okay in one or two years based off of what's being developed to kind of mitigate some of the trade-offs of that what what could this look like right um and so yeah i think i think we'll 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 further explore that as we go on the season one thing that was
2: uh, sort of stuck out to me not you know was, was this idea that capture happens not at the Ethereum level, but at the MetaMask at the wallet level. Yeah, so Jay- right. Jason's been really digging into this idea of like the wallet, the wallet wars. And actually yeah. it's funny because I can, I can remember when I was first getting involved in crypto, you know, it was the rollover of the 2017 bubble. So everything was going to be useless. But the two things that people were very bullish on was custody and wallets, which is yeah, kind right. of the same thing. Right. But like. One of those ended up playing out big in like Bitco and Anchorage and you sort of saw the rise of these like institutional uh, custodians, but the retail wallet, it like never really took off. Like maybe because bear markets are not a period of time when, when a lot of new retail users sort of come in, but it always kind of amazed me that, yeah, like the wallet level is so critically important and doesn't get a whole lot of airtime
3: no no and 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 something we haven't really talked about because we've been talking about you know vertical integration going down from the application level but you know we'll see with uniswap and and to some extent with osmosis already right uh applications that also want to own the wallet and how does that you know i guess having a you know better ownership of the customer right by owning the wallet and the touch points how does that play out against the friction of you know making the user create a new wallet um you know how many do you you basically have to own those customers to begin with right uh or else you're you're adding a another layer of friction that just might be too much um and so yeah we haven't really talked about you know vertical integration going upwards but um that's that's something to you know definitely explore as we uh as we you know chat about it with more folks on the season when it comes to vertical integration as well, there's like two sort of big benefits
2: to keep in mind that we, we kind of like touched on both, but just like highlight it for people who are listening. There's the economic, uh, reason why you'd want to vertically integrate. You want to be able to, uh, you know, extract more fees basically from every layer in the stack. But then there's also, and it seems like this is more important to, to Sunny, which is you want to be able to control every part of the, of the user experience, right? From like the wallet to the exchange, etc. The, the downside of that, right? Is that it's more surface area for, for governance. I know. So yeah, that you've made, um,
3: yeah, exactly. We didn't really get into that as much today, but I think we did get into the permissioning side. Right. Um, which is great because you can curate your own block space and it's, it's still decentralized because it's through governance, but, You know, to Sonny's point, what happens when governance decides that they no longer just want to be an app chain anymore, right? And you start to get into some challenges around scope creep. Um, and I thought Dimitri brought up some really interesting examples of how, you know, you might be able to abstract that away from governance, um, or, you know, ossify this sort of, you know, curation into the protocols dynamics by, by treating fees differently for different sort of chains. Um, so I thought that was another very interesting piece because yeah, the, the, the scalability of, of governance, um, is, is definitely a big question here.
2: Sunny at one point drew his like quadrant, right? Like his quadrant example, which I think and now, you know, something is kind of clicking before, you know, we recorded this, had a talk with Dimitri and he was describing like how he thought it was inappropriate to basically call it app space. And I think a big, a way that I'm now kind of thinking about this is, there's like generalized blockchain space and app-specific space, right? And like, that's actually a more, because there's so many words now, dude. There's like roll ups and roll apps and L2s and L3s. Right. And like, honestly, maybe the most appropriate delineation is just like how far away you are from the settlement layer and then whether or not it's specific, uh, specific dedicated to one specific app type space and then, or general sort of a uh, blockchain space.
3: Exactly, exactly. Because you could, you, you couldn't say like Cosmos is just app chains, right? Because, you know, to Sunny's point, all these things exist, you know, and, and that's that life cycle, I think is where for, for every every application is where this becomes very relevant, right? So at what point are you in, in your own life cycle? Um, and, and where does it make sense as a starting point based off of that? Is it on a general purpose, you know, L1 smart, any sort of smart contract platform? General purpose L1, L2, right? And then as you grow, you know, are you going across that spectrum and getting closer to having your own dedicated app space, and maybe expand vertically even more with your own app chain? Um, but yeah, I, I did, I did like that spectrum, or, or I guess the uh, the cross here um, between general purpose and app specific.
2: You pulled out a super uh interesting point in that as well which is the permissioning argument that was when dimitri kind of framed that as like you know how do you okay so it's all very well and good to say oh this app this specific block space is for this app but how do you actually enforce that right because people might you you might as the creator right of the of the block space you'd be like i want to only use for this specific thing but in a lot of senses permissionless so people could just start using it for other things and how do you Enforce that. Exactly. Interesting exactly. question.
3: Kind of defeats the purpose. And, you know, I I think just to touch on it again, I see I see three general approaches here. There's the governance, you know, gating, um, from that permissioning of contracts and permissioning for chain upgrades, obviously. Um, there's sort of implicit gating that we were talking about just now in terms of treating maybe disincentivizing certain types of activity with higher fees. Um and then there's of course just, you know, non- I would say almost enterprise you know roll ups and and um like we see this with like so rare or you know some of the other Starknet um Rollups. That this is basically one company that's that's saying, okay, you know, you're getting most of those benefits of security from Ethereum because it is a zk rollup. But at the end of the day, right, this is we're we're kind of in charge of this. Um, and you're coming here for a specific reason, right, to trade NFTs or you know to trade on DYDX. But how important will it be for them, you know, to actually decentralize that sort of permissioning? Um, and and just how effective is it through governance versus other ways?
2: Mm-hmm. All interesting questions. Yeah. Anything else that you found particularly interesting you want to highlight? Or
3: I think that 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 mainly covers it. I think we're going to yeah. get we're going to dig into the the interoperability piece quite a bit more um, over the course of the season because I think it's mainly a question of a uh, you know okay if you see this is kind of the direction Ethereum is heading what what needs to be built in order to get there what sort of standards need to be established right to enable that same sort of um, Async composability that you get with IBC on Cosmos. Um, Is it, you know, going to be a top down approach where Ethereum says, okay, you're going to have this built in standard, um, like we talked about, or is it going to be bottoms up where you have, you know, maybe applications that know they interact frequently with each other are going to, you know, Kind of have the same sequencer set, right? So it's a little bit more frictionless, but, but very much so within just a little sector of apps. Um, and, and no one shared standard like you see on the Cosmos side.
2: And for, for folks, we know this was like a, a slightly technical episode, but one way that helps my uh, five year old brain understand standards, right? Is it, you can have, there are all sorts of different cars out there, right? Like, you know, tens or, or, However many different car brands are, you could go to any auto shop and they know how to change your tires because there's a an agreed upon set of standards in the automotive industry, right? That you don't vary by, you know, you, th- you know, a couple different sets of screws, or it could be a couple different sizes, but ultimately, like that's what makes that work, right? So you can that basically unlocks, you know, uh, auto repair shops and aftermarket businesses and all this kind of stuff. So that was what Sonny was talking a little bit about. It's like, hey, we haven't like agreed on any sets of standards. So we as the developer of like Kepler wallet, everyone's like trying a whole bunch of new innovative stuff, but it's like, guys, we need to. There needs to be guardrails around it, right, essentially. Right. So,
3: and that will that will need to be an application, you know, based push for Ethereum, right? Which it, it's it's not been kind of the typical course of development for Ethereum. Um, you know, they've not been building just to cater to a certain set of apps, but mm-hmm. I think that we could see that change as the apps, you know, gain more leverage over, I guess, the chain itself, right?
2: Hmm. You know, what else is funny. Just in close, this is so much in crypto gets reduced to like a technical argument but also a huge component of this is just different communities and their priorities and like the culture that gets set. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Like
3: 100%.
2: Cosmos as a community just focuses on this, right? And the leaders who are in Cosmos actually it's too, it's almost too bad we didn't get this Sunny made this point after we uh you know left, but there's a big difference within the Cosmos community of the core devs also being application builders versus in Ethereum the the core devs and app are, are completely separate right? So that is a cultural thing, right? That's not, there's no technology that makes that the case, but like, that's a huge cultural difference in between it's just funny yeah. to pick apart. The maybe, yeah, of- maybe
3: just to give give a sense of what he was talking about there. This would be the equivalent of, you know, if the next EIP uh, for Ethereum, the next major Ethereum upgrade was really developed by, say, the Uniswap developers, the Aave developers, the MakerDAO developers, right? Those, those application developers are the ones really dictating where the base layer goes and what standards they introduce. Um, you know, that's definitely not the case today. Um, and in fact, they really try to separate each other out. Out, not to give any application some sort of special privilege, um, but I think you know it's a big question to see if that will change over time. All
2: right, buddy, this has been a really fun one. Just to give you guys uh, a sense of what uh, we've got coming up in episode two, we're going to be talking with Sam Hart and Zachy Manian about we called it fat apps. Maybe we should change it to, to tall apps uh, and aggregation theory. But getting into even more detail about this idea that value may accrue at the app layer as opposed to uh, you know further down the, the infrastructure stack at the protocol layer. So. This has been a fun one, um, and yeah, buddy, I'll see you. See you next week.